All right, so we're in the 13 lessons of wisdom. And by the way, this is where we're going to, this is, what we're, this is the bulk of what we're going to do with the book of Proverbs. We're going to go through the 13 lessons of wisdom, but by no means think that there isn't a lot more. We're going to go through these, and this is going to be the end of our study when we finally get to the 13th lesson. But I implore you, like with everything else, but especially now, it's just like you've seen the burden of my heart. Buy wisdom. Purchase the land for that pearl of great price. Sell everything you have to get that. It is by wisdom that God created everything. Wisdom was his companion. We're going to see in, in Proverbs here that not only was wisdom his companion, but wisdom is equated as a she in the female vernacular. If you know that about Proverbs, you see that. And, and if you look at an addendum to Proverbs, is the Proverbs chapter 31, where this virtuous woman is defined. Now, I personally think, and, and, and it's just my own opinion, that although God talks throughout Scripture about how a woman and a man should be, and we've We've laughed and cried about those things in this class, right? And I've, I've been on hopefully both sides of that equation, moving toward the better side of it. But my point is this. Why did God embed the framework of the perfect woman? He's giving you the reference standard. Why would God embed the reference standard of the virtuous woman inside the book of Proverbs? It's sort of like after he uses the wonderful things of what a woman is, what she is built to be, and he wraps it up by saying, oh, by the way, here's the definition of why I equate wisdom to the most beautiful woman. God talks about Israel. God talks about us as his bride, Jesus' bride, as beautiful. Why are we equated to women? It's because women are built to be beautiful. Men are built to be strong and hopefully honorable and, and uh, confident and protectors and, and all those and the hunters and, you know, we get the food. But a woman is supposed to be virtuous, as a man is supposed to be strong and upright and true and a leader and a good king. But why isn't wisdom equated to this man? It's because wisdom is beautiful. It's beauty personified. It is beauty that once you gain more and more wisdom, you will see it is absolutely the staff of life. And that's why God says it was his companion. She was his companion when he created everything. That's how important she is. So lesson four in this uh, series here, um, we actually already did lesson four. We're, gonna st you know, we're not going to continue in it, but lesson four, if Proverbs chapter three, verse 11. It's, uh, it's actually 11 through 20, and it's called wisdom. Now listen to this. This is what this little section I want you to, because this is why it's broken up in lessons here, because I want you to understand what the teacher, who is Solomon, but the teacher, who's actually God. Remember, all these words are God's words, right? So God is your teacher, my teacher. And in this lesson, what he wants to impart to you and me is that as delighting in the Lord, and we're supposed to delight in our Lord, that's one of the major things, that's one of the, the benefits for eternity we will have, it starts now, is delighting in our Lord. So he's saying here, and you're going to hear this as we read, as delighting in the Lord, so are the delights of wisdom. Basically what he's saying is delight in wisdom as you delight in the Lord, because the Lord and wisdom are really one. They're one thing. God's mind is wisdom. Everything he does is by wisdom. So wisdom is shown as, a, as to be a continuous delight, just as you delight in the Lord. If you have wisdom, she will abide in you, she will protect you, she will guide you, and she will bring you onto the high paths. And that's the point. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to... Um, a part of wisdom, let's, let's start in chapter 3 and verse 11, just to review some of these. So this is very important. So in that lesson, so you know what this is about, the delighting in wisdom, in God's wisdom, and that means you want to understand it and partake of it, right, and live that. 
The first thing that God says in that lesson text is on Proverbs 3 and verse 11, because this really is, is so, such a, a great start to all of this. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or chastisement. Don't despise it. And do not resent his rebuke. Don't get bitter. Like I told you that my story, just a little bit I shared with you, it was a very sharp rebuke. It was a sharp discipline. And it wasn't so much a punishment because I had been a bad boy. That can come too. I had been a bad boy, but I really didn't, I can honestly say I did not really know that I was a bad boy. Now, ignorance is no excuse, but what I'm saying is, is I wasn't going out and committing adultery to my wife or stealing anything. So it wasn't that I knew I was, it was my, my life was overly wrapped up into the right pursuit. That's my point. And also, he had to get me away from some er errors that I thought about him because of my wrong understanding of Scripture, which I was just really coming out of. You see what I'm saying? With that legalism. That's what this is about. So he had to rebuke me. It was a correction. Because in our vernacular, when you say rebuke or discipline, it's like spanking, spanking. Well, th what he's really saying here is replace those words with something that would be more, give us better understanding in our current vernacular, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, right. But that would, but you're right. But actually, he's a. Like, don't turn around and blame God or get mad at God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know what? That's perfect, Janet, because here's the point. This is a very good point. The movie that Janet's talking about is called The Gray. It's got Liam Leeson in it. Anybody see that movie, The Gray? Nope. You don't want to see it. Nope. I made the mistake of seeing it. But what I, what, what at the end of the movie, they all die. Okay, they're all trapped in the wilderness. They all get eaten by wolves. He shakes his fist at God in a most horrible way. Profanity included. Okay? And my point was, this is what I was describing, my point was is that he was unrepentant in his shaking his fist. Now, was he being punished by God? Well, and this is what I'm going to say, probably not directly. Here's what I mean. Everybody's going to go to judgment in the last great day. Those who've decided they want justice and not grace under Jesus Christ. So those will get their judgment. And you know, life and, and circumstances happen to us all. However, he's willfully on the camp of Satan, especially to say those things and do those things. But people in, re in real life who shake their fist at God, sometimes, and this is the point, Christians, when we're hurt, mm -hmm. we can shake our fist at God. But it's a different motive. Mm -hmm. Like Job. Like Job. Thank you very much. Perfect example. Yeah, like Job. Right. But, but you notice, that, absolutely, that's a, but the two of you sitting together, you must be sharing minds here because yeah. the, both examples were perfect. Thank you. <laughs> that's right. You're both Proverbs 31 women, so I appreciate that. But here's my point. One is shaking their fist at God, and God's laughing at him. Right? You fool. Nabal, fool. There's three terms for fool that you use in Proverbs. But a Christian, when they shake their fist, is under this. You are getting what you are getting because you need it. And God is doing it to make you better than you have ever been before. And that's the difference. So thank you for bringing that up, Janet. Do you see? So this does not apply to the person who does not have God's uh, grace and salvation through Christ. And you notice that, by the way, this is in the Old Testament, correct? The Jews can read this and not understand it. And it wasn't just for them because it's in the Old Testament. Because, you know, there were people who were saved in the Old Testament times. And how were they saved? Just like Abraham was saved. He didn't see Jesus Christ come, but they believed in looking for a city whose builder and maker was God, and the only way to get there was through His grace, which they saw Messiah, because Messiah was predicted right in the beginning of Genesis. And they believed that. And that was accounted to them for 
righteousness. And that's why he is in the book of Hebrews. So if anybody says to you, was anybody ever saved in the Old Testament? They couldn't have been because Jesus didn't come yet. Well, he did actually. That's what the whole sacrifice, sacrificial system was about. Right? Amen. That's right. That's right. And there are people who still believe only in the things that point to it. And they don't believe in it itself as being already done. And those are the people who are unfortunately destined to go to this place that was only intended for Satan and the evil angels and the demons, this place called hell, which is not populated yet, but it's going to be. Just as Jesus Christ is what? Preparing a place for us in his Father's house? He's also in the process of preparing this place called hell. Because when there's a final separation of the wheat and the tares at the last great day, we'll have already been put in our places in heaven. The final separation will be when all of those people and all of the demons and, and Satan are permanently locked away forever in the place prepared for them at the other end of the spectrum. And the opposite here, I mean, this is the, the sharp dichotomy where we will be sealed and have God for eternity. Their torment will be mostly the fact that they will be sealed and never even hear from the Holy Spirit ever, 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 ever again. That's why Jesus was under such torment in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's because It wasn't because so much he was going to go through the suffering, the physical suffering. It was because he knew for the first time through this thing called eternity, he was actually going to be separated from God. And if you think about the, the context of eternity, and I've talked about this in my class, if you think about that, the converse is that if eternity is such a long amount of time, which it's not, but it seems to us that it is, then even a few seconds of disconnection from God after you've known him for where there is no time, is agony like it's going to be for eternity. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Can you imagine yourselves even be separated from God for a moment? That's why it's so upsetting to me that anybody can say there's more than one way. That's right. Yes. I mean, the Father had to turn his back on his son. Amen. And that time of horrible judgment, it's so... Right. And how much did it hurt God himself to turn his back on his son for that quote-unquote short amount of time? But we know that Scripture says at just the right time, Whatever that means. I mean, we can sort of understand partly what that means. But the time did not exist until God created this physical universe. Time is a physical property. I've told you about that. I've shown you how science looks at time. If time is a physical property, that means everything's, everything's keyed to time here. So at just the right time, which has nothing to do with eternity, at just the right time in this physical dispensation, the fulcrum of history was under the seesaw, and that's Jesus Christ and him coming and dying in the way that he was supposed to. You know, Satan wouldn't mind Jesus dying. Just don't oh, do it on the cross. It's the rising part. That's, that's right. It's, the going, it's, it's all the prediction in time. But it's what prophecy about. Prophecy, quote-unquote, miracle of prophecy is the fact that it's predicting exactly what's already been happened. It's already has happened, rather. You see what I'm saying? There's no tricks in time because God is above time. So everything that could happen, is, that's why he says he knew you and me before we were in the womb. How could you know that? Well, because it's not a trick. If we don't understand it, that's why we think it's so hard to deal with. But for God, it's nothing. That's not the miracle. The virgin birth is not the miracle. We can do that in science today. It's the merging of God's DNA with this thing called human DNA to create a brand new being that never existed before and will now exist in that form for eternity. And that's why Jesus Christ, when he came back, looked like he did as a human being. He had bones. He still had the wounds in his hands because being human is ultimately very important because you, in your DNA, were created specifically after what? God's image. So now here's the merging of God so tightly with God's image in flesh called Jesus Christ. That's how important human beings are. You see what I'm saying here? You and I are tightly integrated with God 
because God came down and integrated himself with our physiology down to the DNA. Is that too scientific for you? That's how the spirit tightly integrates with us because it's only integrating with himself because we really are the human image of him. It's a completion of this whole thing. Not that God is incomplete, but he's making us part of that completeness because he's designed us from the DNA up to be like him in his image. And now he's going to bring us with home with him to be ever bound with him. And another thing I'll bring up here, and we're going to have to end very shortly here, so forget. The triune God. The triune God. I want you to think of unity in this. There's none of us here who can really understand what the triune God is. Elohim, even the Hebrews, because of God, and only because God gave it to them to understand, right? What is the triune God? Well, it's called Elohim, which is actually the only singular plural or plural singular that you can ever come up with because it doesn't make sense in this physical universe. Here's what I'm saying to you. We talked about time as not existing in eternity, correct? It does not exist this way. It does not. I, I actually look at time where there's never, a, there's never a present moment in time. Do you realize that? It's always moving, even down to the picosecond. So you're never stopped in time. You know, we may say we live in the present day. It's always in context of what you're talking about. If I say this is the present moment, well, this present moment's our class that's going to end shortly. You see what I'm saying? But for a scientist, the present moment may be the time it takes for an atom to be split and for the subatomic particles to disappear, or to not disappear, but dis dis disillusion, dissolate, which is less than a picosecond, right? <coughs> All I'm saying to you is this, everything's relative and in context. That's why Einstein's theory of relativity was proven. So let's talk about the physical, the fourth dimension, which is time, which we already discussed, the three dimensions, which is length, width, and height. Husband and wife, there is marriage because of what reason? As the closest that two human beings can be bound together in this physical life on this planet, right? That's the closest you can get. That's why God says at the beginning, and the man shall leave his mother, to cleave to his wife and they shall be as? Now, our concept of being one is in this covenant. And further, the real making of one is when you consummate the marriage. And out of that comes creation, right? You see how this flows? That's why having this thing called the consummation of marriage outside of the bonds of marriage is so blasphemous and illegal and immoral and disgusting to God. It's sort of like allowing this bonding between two people who should never be bonded. And those of you who've known, like I know, who you know, had lived a life before I was Christian, there's a bonding that takes place that should never take place. That's why I told my daughter, you're not dating until you are ready to start looking for a mate. There is no reason to date. Be friends. There's expectations there that will want to be met, like touchy-feely. And even Solomon says, Solomon's Song of Solomon, not to, um, and i got to paraphrase, we're going to get to the book of the Song of Solomon. Uh, do not allow passion to arise before its time, which means that do not allow a young person to get into a situation where passions will rise. And in a society, honors that, doesn't it? Because the reason is, is that marriage and the bond in marriage and, and the physical bonding in marriage, which is the ultimate bonding in marriage, which, by the way, is the only really way that you should be able to produce life. Now, science can circumvent that. And as a matter of fact, God did that with the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, but that was for a specific purpose. But for us human beings, the only way we should be able to really create a life is, you know, a baby, is to have that one union in the most intimate of ways. Well, the triune God can only be described as being so close that they're inside of each other because in eternity there is no such thing as length, width, and height. Just as time is a single moment that lasts for eternity, that never, you know what I'm saying? You could look at it that way. 
the triune God is so close that it's the perfect merging of length with height and time that they don't really exist. That's why he's always in the presence. That's always right. And they were always tightly bound. Even when Jesus was here, they were still a trinity. Hopefully that helps you understand what wisdom should dictate to you. And to look at your context of your life here and what it's about. And how we roll up to this God of ours. Do we have to quit now? We got five minutes? All right, when you start walking out, I'll, uh, I'll stop. <laughs> Maybe it's something I'd said. All right, let's, so uh, uh, hopefully I explained a little bit, because I want you to think, the better you can think along the context of how God operates, the better off you're going to be understanding His Word and being more bulletproof in this life. You know, when God says to you and I, and we see it in the Proverbs, that, you know, that wisdom will guide your heart, it will bound you, bind you up, and all those things, it's true. But we can't really take advantage of that when we're looking around us so much. We have to realize that we're ambassadors here, that we're bound up in the physics of heaven, although we're still in these bodies. You already have your eternal life. It's just a question right now. You're still living it in this physical world, in your body. If God wants you to be bulletproof, which he does, you should take advantage of that because it's true. You can be. That, means you won't get, that doesn't mean you won't get physically hurt. Bulletproof means you walk through this life with proper expectations and with proper regard and not overly regarding this life, not overly regarding the people, places, things, and everything here. That, and Jesus Christ says, do not worry, right? If you seek the kingdom of God first, all of the things you need will be added to you. That's bulletproof, folks, especially nowadays. All right. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves. And that's why I said that guy who shakes his fist who is not saved, well, the Lord loves him too, but he wants justice, so the guy's going to get his justice. As a father, the son he delights in, the God does not feel like a father to those who do not accept Jesus Christ, right? That's why Adam is considered in Scripture, and hear me right on this, Benai Elohim, the sons of God, in that context, mean that it's the sons of God are the angels in those definitions, because it's only used twice in the Bible, where it's strictly talking about angels. Because of sin, which separates, right? We agree sin separates. There's a layer of abstraction now. Where Adam and Eve were like this with God, right? Sin now puts such an abstraction that they are not considered as far as Scripture goes, only as far as Scripture, the way it talks, that human beings now only go back to Adam and not directly to God. That's why there are four Gospels, right? And the Gospel of Luke has a genealogy of Jesus Christ back to whom? Adam. It's the Gospel of John that has him going back to God. Because Luke proves that Jesus had to be fully human, and John proves that he also had to be fully God in his DNA. And that's my point. Blessed is the man who finds wisdom, and the man who gains understanding, that's for sure. Ah, verse 14, for she is more profitable than silver, and yields better returns than gold. Let's move forward. Here's some points I want to make. Verse 19 in chapter 3. Verse 18, boy, I keep on going back here. This is, this is great. Verse 17, her ways are pleasant, her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace, all of them. I'm at peace, and I want this kind of peace for you, even though peace doesn't mean, ha, ah, like I'm on drugs, you know, like I'm always happy. No, it doesn't. Because that's joy is not always being happy, right? Jesus Christ went through what he did for the joy that was set before him, but you could see he wasn't so happy about having to go through that, right? But he went through it because of the joy. And this is our life here. Go through it because of the joy that is set before you. She is a tree of life to those who embrace her, those who lay hold, lay hold. You're not going to get it unless you go after it. You must lay hold on it. That's why it says she's precious. 
By wisdom, and here's my point I made before, 19. By wisdom, the Lord laid the foundations of the earth's foundations. By understanding, which by the way, the definition of wisdom is the deepest of understanding, right? You can understand something, and then you can deeply understand something. Yes. Don't go to college because you'll understand something. But if you study something yourself, whether you're in college or out, whether any subject you're talking about, if you really study it yourself, you will wind up with deep understanding. Amen? That's with God's Word. You don't have to go to seminary. You just have to have the Holy Spirit to interpret this. All right. The counterfeit wisdom. An interesting exercise in futility, and we're going to wrap up with this part. Verses three, uh, chapter 3, verses 11 to 18. Now, we saw the benefits of true wisdom. We just read some of those things in this lesson about delighting in wisdom. Remember, that's what this lesson is about, this set of Proverbs we're reading. Here is sort of the antithesis of it, and this is where we're going to move forward here. Beware. I'm going to, actually, you can stay there. I just want to show you the antithesis of it is Satan's wisdom. Okay, and I want to read you something from Genesis. That's what I meant. I want to read. I'm going to give you a contrast. I didn't mean to confuse you. I want to give you a contrast to what we just read, because the best way to drive home a point I find out is to give a contrasting point, point. Mm-hmm. and we've seen that in Proverbs, right? How those rhymes actually work that way, don't they? So let me give you this. I'm just read this to you. Genesis chapter three, verses two to six. The woman said to the serpent, "We may eat fruit from the tree in the garden, from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die." Verse 4, you will not surely die, the serpent said. Now, she would probably question that. Wait a minute, God said we die. You're saying we not die. Um, let me hear more about this. Hmm, this is interesting to me. You see where I'm going with this? That's how he sets the hook. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. By the way, that was true. That's right. And it was something to be desired. And that's what these people, with the breath prayer, with these wayward doctrines, they want to tickle your ears because it sounds good and it sounds like it's going to give you wisdom. Right. And so what does he say here? God knowing good from evil. Would you say that, isn't that wisdom? Aren't we supposed to discern good from evil with the Holy Spirit? Yeah. Not on your own. Not on your own because it'll get you off the... But but you see the carrot that was dangled here? right but that's how he gets you because no one really wants to. like Adam and Eve were not seeking to sin against God they yeah. weren't their bread was buttered right their toast was buttered they had breakfast every day they had lunch and dinner in the most beautiful restaurant on paradise island. well and was it an island and God huh and God was walking, God was walking with them and teaching them do you realize that the import of God directly yes. teaching I mean, we only have that, say only, quote-unquote, but we have that through God's Holy Spirit. But they had God standing before them. And they didn't have the proper nature. And they didn't have the Bible. They had the stars. And I'm not talking about astrology. You know that. I'm talking about astronomy. What does Psalm say about the universe, about the stars? That they call forth knowledge day and night. And this, these, the constellations, if you haven't been in this class, get my notes, by the way. BibleStudyWeekly.net, Volume 1, start from the first page. And within the first 50 pages of those notes, if you do not learn something new, you can return it for a refund. But it won't cost you anything. So. I'm serious. I go through in those first 50 pages of Volume 1, BibleStudyWeekly.net. I know maybe some of you have never been there. Maybe some of you will never go there. I hope you choose to do so. You will learn about the gospel as written in the stars. And it is not astrology, it's astronomy. Yes. Amen. Anyway, have a great week, everybody. We're going to continue this next week, God willing. And I think you will. <laughs>